Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everyone deserves a chance in the driver's seat. For GM and Revolt, that means leading the way on the road to an all-electric future and envisioning a world with zero crashes, zero tailpipe emissions, and zero congestion. GM's committed to making EVs accessible for everybody. That means you too. So what are you waiting for? GM's got the keys. You grab the wheel. Learn more about an all-electric future and the 000 initiative at GM.com. GM, everybody in. It's the Beckett case, and um, it happened in the early uh, 1990s uh, mm-hmm. near Hilton Head, South Carolina. And the family collectively owned uh, about 365 acres. Mm-hmm. And a, a real estate agent by the name of Audrey Moffitt, uh, she went into um, a hospice where Mrs. Beckett was staying. She, uh, Mrs. Beckett, I believe had a second or third grade um, education level Mm. and she was dying of cancer. And she told her that she was um, selling like life insurance or timber or something. And um, she gave Miss Beckett $750, told her here, sign this piece of paper. Miss Beckett didn't realize she was signing away her deed rights. Her deed right, her deed right, her deed right, her deed right, Welcome to Wow Black, a seriously opinionated podcast bringing you the real and raw on anything happening while black. If black culture's there, we're there. If you're pissed or empowered, then let's talk about it. Ride with us on this all-black everything. Everybody, welcome back to Wild Black. Welcome back, people. Welcome back. So this today's episode is is one that, first off, everybody needs to understand it because it has it has impact on you, and it's significant, but you don't even know it. Before we jump in, I want to hit you with a few numbers. Your numbers are numbers, guy. <laughs> 2.4 billion. That's the number of acres of land in the United States. A couple more important numbers. 20 million acres and 3.6 million acres. Now, before I tell you exactly what those numbers are, I'm going to give you a disclaimer. Our guest today is the expert in this space. The numbers I'm sharing are simply from research but I can't imagine they're too far off. If anything, it might be a bit worse of a story. 2.4 billion, 20 million, 3.6 million. Let me give you the context behind that. 2.4 billion acres of land in the United States. 20 million acres is what black folks owned someplace between the end of the Civil War and about 1920. That's about 14% of the acres of land in the U.S you can probably guess that 3.6 million or 1.6% is what we own roughly now. And it's actually probably a little bit less because this number was from 2012. So imagine that in the early 1900s, prior to 
the Tulsa race riots, prior to the Atlanta, prior to Rosewood, prior to Oscarville and Lake Lanier, we held, in a relatively short time, in a time frame where the sentiment was overly negative against black folks in this country, where we were being killed, lynched, murdered, beaten, robbed. And not that we're not today, don't get it twisted. But it was different then. We amassed 20 million acres. And now today, we sit under five. That's what we're talking about today. How did that happen? How is it still happening? What does it look like today? And our guest, Ms. Jillian Hyshaw, is going to talk to us about what she's doing to help protect where we are, to help build back better, and what we can do to help her along in that fight. Jillian, welcome to Wild Black. How are you? Good. Thank y'all so much for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I know you are an agricultural attorney. I know you are a founder and director over at Farms. I know you've got 10 plus, 15 or so years in this game. I know you're a champion for farmers and a preserver of land. And I know, frankly, that you just give a damn about our position here. Why don't you tell the folks just a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Yeah, so thanks again. Um, I've been in this field uh, since 1999. I'm originally born and raised from Kansas City, Missouri. And um, prior to starting um, Family Agriculture Resource Management Services, I was co-founder of another nonprofit dealing with Black land loss. And then I worked for the U.S. Department of Agriculture within the Office of Civil Rights in D.C. under the Obama administration. And then prior to that, I worked as an environmental planner and then also um, for a state conservation agency. And so a lot of uh, background and experience in the area of agriculture and environmental uh, justice as well as civil rights. But we don't, we don't want to hold the show up, so we want to get into our wild black shit. <laughs> our brothers, all you. Let's get it. All right. So I'm going to give you kind of a quick recap. So our... Our, or a quick summary. Um, our wild black shit is designed to get you warmed up. It's three questions. First two questions kind of get you, get, you, get you going. And then our third question is our signature question that we ask every single guest. You ready to go? Yes. Yes? Okay. okay. That, was, a little that was a hesitant a yes, but it's like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> question one. Now, you got to think back to your childhood for this one. So, as a kid, growing up, what was your favorite breakfast cereal? And I'm going to give you seven options. You get to pick which one and then tell us why. Does she only need seven? I can tell you what it is I, right I, now. I, 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 Cabin Crunch Crunch Bear. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> that ain't even one of the options. Stop it. Listen. <laughs> I'm, I'm about to fire us. Look, Fruity Pebbles, Lucky Charms. I know Frosted Flakes better be in there. Frosted Flakes. Okay. Cocoa Puffs, Cinnamon Toast Crunch, Honey Nut Cheerios. Here's a seven. I'm so country, I didn't eat cereal like that. We had oatmeal or grits. Oh, I'm with that. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not even my question. Sorry, Jillian. Sorry. <laughs> so I will read it again. Fruity Pebbles, Lucky Charms, Frosted Flakes, Cocoa Puffs, Cinnamon Toast Crunch, Honey Nut Cheerios. Country, we didn't even eat cereal. We had oatmeal or Grits. Frosted Flakes. Look at you. Where mm-hmm. you, you from <laughs> up north? Kansas City. 
Okay. Missouri. Okay. Midwest. Yeah. All right, I got you. I got to you. To use your word, but the Frosty <laughs> like Flex is amazing. It, that, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they touch they touch the spirit. I'm, I'm with you on the Frosty Flex. They, they, that's a that's a W for that one. All right. So we're gonna we're gonna for the second question, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take you into music a little bit. And it's in one question. This is this is super easy. Do you like R and B first? Of course. Okay, okay. I, I, I just want to hear your smile come across because I, I think I think you're gonna kill this one. How long did Tevin Campbell want to talk? Oh, four minutes. <laughs> Bingo! You got it. All right, <laughs> that was an easy one. Four minutes. That was. Can you sing it? Mm-mm. <laughs> you should. Mm-mm. I can blend in, but I can't sing. Mm, That's stuck okay. by a gift. <laughs> okay, okay. Third question. Our signature question. What do you love most about life while black? I love the resilience of black people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I primarily work with, with elders, so people between 75 and like 98. Mm. Um, so I'm always, I really don't, I don't know, hang around a lot of young people. So I'm, I'm really, um, amazed at everything that they've been through Mm -hmm. and how they could still be so happy and positive. Uh, and they keep me, I don't know, encouraged. Mm. Um, but I think that the best trait is resilience when it comes to um, just the black community in general. Mm-hmm. Because we, on a, I don't know, millisecond basis, are always um, chastised and ridiculed. Um, and so I, I just love how we bounce back. I love that answer. So you, you, killed, you killed the wild black shit. We, we applause. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You, you thank are you, definitely you. safe, definitely connected to the culture. Correct. I, Boom. Plugged right in. Right, right. So we're going to hit <laughs> our dope quote. Now, listeners know our dope quote is from the mouth of someone black. Typically, today it's actually not. But it has relevance on the topic. And when I found this quote, it just struck me as, as, as so hyper-relevant to what we're talking about today. Now, it's from Margaret Mitchell. And I'm be honest, folks. I don't know who the hell that is. <laughs> All I know, she's an American novelist who died like in the 40s. So I don't know her policies nor her politics. So don't judge me. <laughs> but these words matter. <laughs> Let me read it. Land is the only thing in the world that amounts to anything. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What is the only thing that lasts? It's the only thing worth working for, worth fighting for, worth dying for. Now, in spirit, there are a couple other things I think are worthy. But theoretically, in what she's saying today, the power of land, the impact of land, the ability to build wealth from land, I think she's spot on. So, Jillian, with that quote, what comes to mind for you when I read it? I just think of. Um how much land we lose, because that is true. Uh, It's the highest valued asset uh, within any country. 
but some some people, some black folk that own land, they don't see it as that. They see it as a tax burden. Yeah. Um, and mm, they'll yep. just walk away from it. They don't value it. Yeah. And um, trying to convince children, grandchildren of landowners of the value of land. And if it wasn't valuable, then people that, um, you know, are non-melanated wouldn't be you know, in the tax office, tax assessor's office uh, each day, you know, scoping out the roles, trying to see who didn't pay, mm-hmm. you know, their property tax this month. And so it is um, immensely valuable and trying to convince people that already own land that it's valuable is just astonishing to me because the families that have lost land, like my family, Mm-hmm. We would, you know, give our left arm to to okay. have it back. Yeah. And so um, I think in some instances uh, with some people, they have to lose it in order to value. realize the value of yeah. it. And then once they lose it, it's too late. Yeah. Hey, since you, you brought up, you know, what happened to your family, if you don't mind, do you, do you mind giving us a, a short version of your family story and, and how it inspired you to get started in this work? Sure. So uh, my grandfather was raised in Oklahoma, Muskogee, Oklahoma, to be more exact. And he was raised on a... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I I know Muskogee, Oklahoma intimately. Really? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, wow. Yes. (laughs) Um, All our listeners like, like, what? Where is that at? Yes. You said (laughs) Missouri, Oklahoma? (laughs) Muskogee. (laughs) Um. It's that, you know, the old saying, Oki from, from Muskogee. Uh, Muskogee. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, he was raised on a 40-acre farm, but then uh, he relocated, him and my family relocated to Kansas City, but they hired a lawyer to pay the property tax on the land. But the lawyer stole the money and the land was sold in a tax lien sale without mm-hmm. notice being provided to my family at the time. And so um, the elders told me when they went back, uh, the family house was replaced by an oil pump. Mm. Um, and so the land had known oil mm. deposits. And so oh, um, wow. where my grandfather's house used to be, there's now an, you know, an, an oil pump going up and down according to, you know, family history. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, unfortunately, I, you know, I am dealing with cases that are similar uh, to, you know, my own uh, families challenges with tax liens and things like this. And so it's just, you know, it's very important that we protect the land that we have left. Mm. I think it's important for listeners to to hear you say that and also understand that just in case you didn't get it, what was taken from her family wasn't just what you said, 40 acres, right? Right. Right. It wasn't just 40 acres. It was... Minimal rights. Right. The mineral rights, the oil rights underneath that 40 acres. It was the equity gains across all of these 40 acres. It was the ability to to provide commercial movement and and land inside of those 40 acres. It's a long line of deep dollar signs that were taken. And when we don't value our land, someone else will. And they don't tell us the truth about how to get it. So... Knowing that that's what happened to your family, and that's been some time ago. Yes. How is it happening today? 
Um, the same. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the same. There's so many different ways that it's happening. Um, and I, you know, that's why it took me 14 years to write my book, Systematic Land Theft. Um, but it's various ways. It's from Medicaid liens mm-hmm. uh, with nursing homes. And I go into mm. detail, you know, on Don't Bet the Farm on Medicaid in my first book. It's also predatory lending practices by U.S. Department of Agriculture, reverse mortgage companies, um, oil and gas companies. Uh, it's just, it's so many different ways, boundary line disputes, adverse possession. Um, it, it's just a lot. So you, you can run into it, medical trouble and you can end up losing your land. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yes. Yeah, people, like, people need to understand no that, right? The fact that it is not simply you didn't pay your taxes, right? It's, there are multiple ways systematically that your land and all the value it holds can be taken away from you. I'd, I'd love it if you could just take a few of those examples and just dig in just a little bit more. How, how does the, the Medicaid aspect work? How does the, the boundary dispute work? Tell them a little bit more about some of that stuff. Well, um, so Medicaid is is very um, is highly regulated. Don't give them too much because we want them to come by the book too. They need to get the book to get it all. Now. Okay, sorry. <laughs> right, right. Um, well, but it, it's highly regulated, and so the issue comes in is that when you qualify for Medicaid, that um, opens up your assets to a possible lien if you owe an outstanding debt to the nursing home or even if you're receiving in-home care, Mm -hmm. if you owe an outstanding debt to that company. And so it's not just land, but it's all property. And so if you own a a house in New Orleans or if you own land in Ruby, South Carolina, they can place a lien on your land. And so there's two types of states. There's uh, pre-death and Mm post-death. So they can place a lien on your land while you're still living and force the sale and kick you out of your house Mm. to cover the debt. And so it's, you know, that's just one example. When it comes to boundary line disputes, um, you know, it's usually a neighbor that will encroach on the landowner's boundary line and they'll move the fence, you know, six feet, 20 Mm -hmm. feet, you know, this way, this way, this way, until, um, you know, eventually they will claim ownership of that land. Mm. Oh, wow. Mm. That's the OG move right there. Just we'll move keep the inching into your shit until it's mine. Yes. That's wild. Yes. Right. And that's more of a subtle way, but yes. Right. <laughs> you call that subtle. It's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> I just, I just, I just jacked you for ways. an acre. Right. <laughs> yeah, I just, just moved my fence about 5,000 feet on this side of <laughs> Wow. That's my shit. What you talking about? Right. You see that fence line? (laughs) All right. So one question I want to ask for everyone listening is, so what, right? So what that that they've come in and and they took your family's acres and and farmland? So so what that my family lost Big Mama's house, right? It's it's a house. It's it's, it's 20 acres. It's, It's 40 acres, right? Who cares that she owned it for 52 years? How does that impact me sitting right here 2022 right now. Why do I care about that? Well, like, you know, like we both uh, agree, that's generational wealth. Mm -hmm. And so particularly when you own land, there's a bundle of rights legally. It's a bundle of rights. And so you not only 
own what you have underneath, which is mineral rights um, in the soil, but you also own what's above you. You own airspace. Mm -hmm. And so all of that bundled with, you know, your ancestors' investment in the land and just the pool to own the land, to even initially acquire the land, is all lost. It's all lost when it's, you know, deceptively stolen or even sold for pennies on the dollar, unfortunately, by, um, you know, the family that they fought to, um, to own it for in the future. And so when you don't own it, that puts you in a lower tax bracket. It puts you in a lower economic place because the reason why particularly whites are superior in economics is because they stole the land and they used it as generational collateral to gain more wealth. Mm. And so when Ah. you don't have collateral, when you don't have collateral, then you instantly you you know lose that generational um, you know wealth aspect, mm. and so it's so many ways you know that that you know it's lost that wealth is lost. So when you bring up collateral, it, it takes me directly to and, and and listeners, I had no idea of this before. This is something I learned in my reading and in my research. And Jillian, I'm, I'm hoping you can provide extra context around this. As I read about systematic land theft, I ran into something called the air property policy. Are you familiar with that? Of course. I figured you would be. And my understanding of it was that I think people today are familiar with it, maybe by act or action, but but not by name or title. And actually, I'm not even going to explain it. Could you break it down for <laughs> us, please, ma'am? Because why, why would I even go through it? Right. The experts right here. <laughs> why, why is that sure, something to sure. be informed about, something to be concerned about? And the moment you say collateral, that's what popped into my mind. Man, I had about 3,000 thoughts when she said collateral. I said, <laughs> wow. Yeah, um, so um, heirs, it's known as heirs' property in the black community, but the legal term is uh, tenants in common. Mm-hmm. And uh, about 68 to 70% of black-owned land at the moment is owned within the heirs' property structure. And so um, let's, you know, start with an example. So let's say we have um, a husband and a wife and they own a hundred acre farm and they have 10 kids and they both pass away without a will. When, when you pass away without a will, the state that you're living in takes over your estate or your asset distribution. So um, say they're living in Georgia and, um, you know, both pass away without a will, then all 10 kids equally own that 100-acre farm plus the house. Mm -hmm. And so if, I don't know, five generations later, you have 200 heirs that equally own, uh, you know, this 100-acre farm. And if, you know, a third cousin removed, uh, what happens, they usually sell to a developer and that developer basically replaces that third cousin that lives out in LA. They tend to always live out in California. And um, they come in and they force the sale of the remaining 199 um, heirs owner and what's called a court partition sale. Mm. And so when they force the sale, the judge can honor it or deny it. The judge usually denies it based on, oh, well, 
the premise is that it's suppressing um, the economic opportunities of the land. Mm. And it's not being um, fulfilled to its full potential uh, because mm. of the way that it's, you know, the current structure of the ownership. And so the judge usually Basically says, okay, Basically, mm -hmm. okay, I agree with you, Niggas and they force the sale, land. and then the developer turns around and purchases all of the land at 75, 80% below the market value, mm. and that's how we lose so much land. Mm. Um, and I can go in particular to one case that, that is atrocious, um, but, uh, but yes, that's how we lose so much land. Mm. Do you want to talk about the case or no? Yeah, it's it's the Beckett case, and um, it happened in the early uh, 1990s mm -hmm. uh, near Hilton Head, South Carolina. And the family collectively owned uh, about 365 acres, mm -hmm. and a, a real estate agent by the name of Audrey Moffitt, uh, she went into um, a hospice where Mrs. Beckett was staying. She, uh, Mrs. Beckett, I believe had a second or third grade um, education level mm. and she was dying of cancer. And she told her that she was um, selling like life insurance or timber or something. And um, she gave Miss Beckett $750, told her, here, sign this piece of paper. Miss Beckett didn't realize she was signing away her deed rights, mm. and that her value of that was worth uh, forty six hundred dollars. And so, this same real estate agent did the same thing to seven under other heirs, and collectively paid six these six or seven other heirs about sixty five hundred dollars when the value was worth nearly $56,000. Mm. She went to the court, asked for the partition sale. The judge granted it, and then the land was sold. And she bought, I think, 275 acres, and then a friend of her bought, like, the remaining 50 to 75 acres. And Hey there. Ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. The value of that land was worth millions, but she bought it you know, for like $300,000, $200,000. And so that's that's just one example of how we lose so much land. Mm. And the thing is, is that the children found out, they filed a fraud, you know, fraud suit. The court agreed, yes, yeah, she committed fraud and gave um, the family, I believe, 
I don't I think it was like 65,000 in damages, but because <sighs> Miss Moffitt had bought those seven heirs out, she they required her to pay like 45,000 or $65,000, but then she got some of her money back because she was considered, you know, one of the heirs owners because oh, people wow. don't realize when you when you sell it, they basically become, you know, an heirs owner, they replace that family member. And so she was able to share in some of those damages and, you know, got reimbursed. Wow. You know, that's the craziest shit ever. It's awful. It's awful. And so they lost all of that land. They lost all of it. And it was all out of money. And then she did the same thing to the other side of Miss Moffitt's family. And she was recently uh, interviewed, like in 2016. Uh, And this was, you know, again, back in 91, 90, 92. Um, And she said, no, I I don't feel guilty. I still don't feel guilty. They were irresponsible landowners. And now (sighs) the land, you know, is a gated, you know, community, golf courses and things like this. But in in the early 80s, the population of ownership in the Hilton Head area was 80%. And, you know, fast forward now, uh, it's now, I believe, 20% black-owned and 80% white-owned. I said it was 80% black-owned when? In the early 80s. Wow, that's not that long Late 70s, early, mm-hmm. early 80s. That's mm-hmm. And so the, the and thing is— that's high-dollar stuff down there now. Yes. And so the thing is, is that they— it was owned by black folk because it was swamp land. Right. You know, mm-hmm. it, it used to be swamp land yep. and it wasn't really any value. And so, uh, you know, they realized, hey, this is this is a waterfront property in the 80s. And all we have to do, you know, quote, is drain the swamp. You know, that sounds familiar. Yes, it does. And so that's, you know, that's what they did. They drained the swamp. And now, you know, it's gated communities, golf courses, you know, high luxury um, real estate and things of this nature. And so, um, you know, they just continue to dispossess um, black folk out of land. That story is heartbreaking as hell. Yeah, that's tough. Yes, that's tough. I have so many. Jesus, that's tough. Yep, yep. Just had to take a breath on that one, man. Because, I mean, and, and the reason, like, personally, I was looking in Hilton Head for land recently, just watching and looking at how expensive some of this stuff was, and I had no idea it was 80% black 40 years ago. That's, yes. That's, that's, that's crazy. crazy. But not surprising. Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Man, so you're, the way we started the interview today, talking about tax assessor's office and tax rolls and, and unpaid taxes, it, it takes me directly to a conversation around gentrification, right? When you yes. see so many inner city, historically black neighborhoods that are in close proximity to the downtown area, to the arts district, to entertainment, and, and you see those areas changing and you see yoga studios and coffee shops and commercial buildings and restaurants and all these things coming up. And in that, the narrative nowadays is, is kind of centers on building wealth through real estate 
And one of the primary ways to do that is to acquire low, invest, and sell high, right? And unfortunately, a lot of people understand how to utilize tax rolls for that. So for, let's say there's a brother or a sister out there who is intent on building wealth for his family, for her family. How do they balance gentrification and negative impact to the black community with positive wealth building for their family and the black community that they know? Like, how, how do you balance the two? Um, well, that's definitely, a, you know, a multi-level question. Yeah. Um, so one thing is that, you know, not all my cases are dealing with white people stealing black-owned land. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there's cases of, you know, black on black theft, land yeah. theft. Um, and, you know, you I don't know, you, you can't um, hitch a wagon to everybody, yeah. you know, as I would say. Um, collective ownership is a great model. Um, it's a model that we've been seeing, uh, particularly in Georgia, um, in other states within the past uh, one to two years, which is great. But you definitely um, have to know who you are collectively going into business with and, and owning with. And so that is definitely a way because uh, land, the, 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 it's up. You know, the value is up. It keeps going up. I right. mean, it's it's quadrupled within the past, you know, few years. Right. And I like, for example, in Iowa, there one acre, I believe, uh, in the fall of last year, sold for like fifty four thousand dollars or or forty thousand. It was some crazy amount. And so, and that was just one acre in Iowa. Mm. And you know, Iowa is, is just you know a cesspool of um, you know, pork manure. But anyway, um. <laughs> And so when it comes to building um, real estate assets, uh, one model is collective uh, purchase and ownership. Mm -hmm. And then another model within families. And so, you know, I've, I've, I do mediation with, with Black families primarily. And it's usually with elders and they usually hold a grudge from something you know, some incident from 1978 and, <laughs> and all of this. And, mm -hmm. you know, there was an incident with um, some landowners in Kentucky this summer, two aunts, you know, two sisters. And they were fighting over the land and literally their walkers flew in the air. Oh, wow. I mean, some and they started. <laughs> yes, I mean, literally. <laughs> they getting it in. And so... Um, when it comes to family dy dynamics and if you want to, because part of the problem is keeping what we already have. Right. And part of the problem is not really getting along, letting stuff go, uh, you know, wanting to build with each other, even when we have the same last name. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and all families are, are often guilty of it. But letting things go, um, you know, and coming together and collectively planning out and executing, you know, an irrevocable trust, also, you know, a will, 
whether that's a pour over will or et cetera, you need to really get your affairs in order. And it needs to be protected, mm. in my opinion, in an irrevocable trust. Yep. And so, you know, that's something to consider as a family. Uh, you know, when you own property already and you want to increase your real estate portfolio, it's often good to put it in a trust because then that eliminates a lot of uh, strife and, you know, grudge holding and, and all of these types of things yeah. because it's a separate entity and it's ran, you know, I would recommend that it's, it's um, ran by a third party trustee or trust company, yeah. you know, and so that decreases just any type of, I don't know, inference or possibility of, you know, the the walkers flying up in the air um, incidences. <laughs> and so, you know, collective um, purchasing, you know, if you're new uh, to farm, you know, farmland or real estate and, you know, you got to stretch your dollar. Uh, so, you know, you can purchase as a group. And then, you know, within a family, I would purchase um, as a trust, as a trust holding company. And then, you know, as an individual, I mean, lending, you know, people always say, oh, you know, use other people's money. But um, I'm so much in student loan debt. I, I, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't like loans. So, you know, definitely saving up and buying you know, a fixer-upper. Yeah. I know several people that they didn't take out loans and they saved up and are they bought with their wife or spouse or they bought with, you know, a few friends. I know, you know, friends and money don't mix, but sometimes they do. Right. You can buy, you know, a house or a duplex jointly and you can fix it up and then you can sell it and go your separate way. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and build, yeah. you know, build on that money that yeah. you, that you, um, so there's, you know, there's definitely there multiple ways, ways yeah. to, to skin the cat, but, um, those are just three that, that I would recommend. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking to myself, I don't know what I don't know. And because I don't know it, I don't know necessarily what I need to know. So if I think back to your story in the beginning about your family and how at some point in there, as the taxation problem grew, and no one was notified, you didn't know. I mean, you didn't know how to defend against it because you, you didn't know that you needed to defend against it. So in, in today's time frame, in 2022, how can people who own land, outside of just putting it into a trust, how can they be a bit more informed about how to defend against having their land stole through taxation? Um, well, that's why I wrote again, systematic land theft. And I give a lot of advice when it comes to that, um, particularly in chapter 12. And so there's, you know, different ways that you can protect it. It just going down to the tax assessor's office when the primary um, owners have passed away, like your grandmother and your grandfather, mm -hmm. and updating the deed is something quite simple. Yeah. I mean, I had a case where the family was about to lose their land due to a reverse mortgage company. And we worked through my nonprofit, we worked with another lawyer and we saved the land in the house from foreclosure. But 
when we looked at the deed, the deed was still in the um, family's former slaveholder's name. Mm-hmm. And this was just like seven years ago. Wow. And so the fact that um, the deeds are not often updated is one of the number one reasons of why, you know, we lose so much land mm. because it's not up to date. The addresses aren't up to date. You know, the person's name, you know, was like a century old. Right. And so just doing something like that will help drastically. That's a hell of a tip there. Yes. Man. Okay, I, I want to switch just a little bit. I know a lot of the work that you do is working with farms and, and, and the company's name is Farms. Yes, the acronym. Why is Black-owned farmland so important? Because we were the cultivators of the United States. You know, our blood is in the soil. Mm. And so, you know, I tell um, people, don't treat the land like dirt, but it's soil. And soil has thousands, over 3,000 microbes in soil and nutrients. And that's how we... We have, you know, we grow food. And so our, our blood, sweat, and tears, you know, is in this land. And there's, um, there's a section of Mississippi, um, and it, it's, it's a highly the recognized. Trace. Yes, the Natchez Trace. Thank you so yeah. much. <laughs> Thank y'all. Um, where there's a section of the Natchez Trace where... There was a um, just a burial of people of of enslaved Africans that were buried alive, mm. and it's now a farm. And Jesus. that area is it, it it's it's it produces like one hundred percent yield. Like it, it's it's always bountiful. It it always produces the best fruit. I think it's a fruit tree farm or, or something like that now. And so when I say that that our blood is in the soil, literally, it, literally it, it is. Literally in the soil. It's, it's, it's in the soil. Uh, you know, we're the ones that cultivated the land. We're the ones that got basically, uh, you know, the U.S. to be, quote, the breadbasket of the, of the world. You know, and so... It's important. Yeah. It's important because the United States would not be anything without, you know, black folk. Yeah, true. I mean, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't be, you know, quote, the number one superpower. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Um, which, you know, unfortunately we're, we're teetering, teetering on that um, status, but it wouldn't be where it is today. It wouldn't be as established. It wouldn't be, you know, as respected um, as it is. Yep. And so to me, it's very important. It's, it's immensely important that we own land because um, we're the ones that, built it up. So powerful. Well, it's just without agriculture, agriculture is a $2 trillion, you know, industry. And so without agriculture, without food, you know, 
we, you know, we really couldn't survive. And so agriculture provides everything. It provides our basic necessities. It provides all of the materials uh, to build, you know, whether that's concrete, whether that's wood. It provides the food that we need to eat. It provides the minerals that we need to keep the utilities, you know, of our houses warm and cold, you know, in the summer. And so it's everything. So, you know, we we contributed to this everything piece of the U.S. So why would we not own it? Yeah, you're 100 percent right. Let's um let's talk about solutions. Right. We've talked about the issues, the problems, the, the trickery, the bullshit. Let's talk about solutions. And you founded Farms, which is Family Agricultural Resource Management Services, correct? Correct. Well, I got that right. Tell us what you do there, how you are becoming part of the fix, part of the solution. What's the work that you do? Yeah, so um, we the website is 30,000acres.org, and it signifies the number of acres that we lose in the Black community per year. I was waiting we for you have- to take that stat out. Say that one more time, so I want them to hear that clearly. Yes, so we lose 30,000 acres um, per year in Black land ownership. Mm, Damn, that's a lot. And so, again, all of the litany of um, ways that I've mentioned um, that we lose land, it it contributes to that number, unfortunately. And so um, we have three different programs to combat that loss. One, of course, is our legal services, um, where we primarily focus on aging um, farmers of color that um, look like my my great-grandmother uh, when she owned the land. And we want to be a the lawyer that my great-grandmother, you know, was hoping to hire. Yeah. And we um, focus on um, elder care abuse issues. We focus, we make sure that um, wills are drafted, the land is placed in um, a family trust. And then we also um, sue people, particularly the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, regarding um, civil rights complaints and their predatory lending practices. Mm-hmm. And so these are just a few things within the legal services arm. The second program is our food bank program where I write grants, raise money, and then I pay the farmers for the produce that would normally be uh, composted. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then it's all donated in the farmer's community. And so over the past eight years, we've purchased and donated um, about 2 million pounds of produce and organic fish. Uh, This program not only operates in the U.S., we've been operating in Sierra Leone since 2019. Love it. Um, We've been operating in the Caribbean um, since 2015. We started in Haiti. Get this work out. (laughs) Flexing on them. Get this work. We started working in Barbados in November. um, And we built a cold storage facility in Arima, Trinidad in um, the spring and summer of 2020. which is great because, you know, if you've been to the Caribbean, it's it's really humid. And so the issue there with the farmers is that, you know, they'll they'll cut the lettuce and everything and then it'll wilt, you mm. know, within a few days. Right. But now with the cold storage facility that we built for the farm co-op, um, their shelf life is um, is, you know, several weeks instead of just a few days. Yeah. And so then we also, you know, 
purchased and donated um, food uh, from farmers in Arima during um, the beginning of COVID. I don't even and know where Arima we've, we've is. Been, where, where, where is Arima? Talk to me. It's it's north. It's north um, Trinidad. Okay. So the mountain area okay. of, of Trini. Educate me. Listen, then, I'm, I'm honest with shit. I don't know. <laughs> and then um, we've helped um, one individual farmer in Jamaica pay his taxes last year. Ooh. And um, we've been working a little bit off and on in uh, South India and Calcutta with some farmers uh, there since 2019 as well. Now, the third program also operates um, internationally and domestic, and that's um, our dual program, our Farmers Emergency Fund. So when we have a farmer that's in financial crisis, we'll provide them with a financial stipend. So, for example, um, we um, have covered uh, purchasing generators uh, Mm -hmm. within the past four to five years, particularly... um, you know, with the hurricanes and everything. So we bought three generators for um, elder farmers between 75 and 95 in August and September in Louisiana, um, right outside of Homer and Slidell. Mm-hmm. Um, 75 and 95, we, that's the ages, right? Yes, okay. so sorry. Yes, 75 and 95-year-old um, elder farmers. Um, we've also covered uh, crop loss. So we purchased seed you know, when they lose crops, Mm -hmm. tractor repair, they are behind on their um, farm loan payment, we'll pay it. Um, You know, you name it, we'll cover it. We just bought a a new set of dentures for a farmer. um, Oh, y'all do it all. In Tennessee. So, (laughs) so, um, so yeah, so that's uh, that fund. And then we the first six years of that fund was dedicated to a child or a grandchild of a black farmer majoring in ag science at Tuskegee University, which is where I finished up and got my biology degree. Right. But okay. um, now we, you know, it's a dual purpose. We still give out the the book scholarship as well. So that's dope. All right, HBCU grad. That was a that was a full flex. Like <laughs> yes. all like yes. a, a straight <laughs> impact flex right there. That's great. Yes, I, I I don't know what I would do without Tuskegee. We just um, purchased collards and cabbage and donated um, yesterday um, in Tuskegee and Shorter yesterday you said to some elders. Cabbage and collards, so. and I thought cornbread, and my damn stomach started growling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, 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 um, yeah. So yeah, th- that's that's about it. Um, We've given out in that fund um, close to $500,000 over the past three years. So oh, Y'all are not playing around. How can people help? People who care, people who, who want to step in and help in the work you're doing, they want to help fight against uh, tax theft and, and systematic land theft and, and gentrification. Like, How can they become active? Yeah, um, definitely. Um, the first thing is please donate. <laughs> um, because we definitely need donations. So visit the site. You can also subscribe um, again at 30,000acres.org. That's numbers, not words. Um, and then also definitely purchase from farmers. You know, often, yeah. uh, you know, we purchase from urban gardeners. Right. Um, I really don't consider gardeners to be farmers. You know, they, they're farming on a four by four plot in the city, but, um, definitely 
purchase from farmers that are in rural areas. Right. Because the farmers in the rural communities, particularly in the Southeast, have a 66%, on average, 66%, you know, poverty rate. And so that's where we primarily work. We don't work in urban areas. We work in rural communities only. Now, we, you know, will buy produce and it'll go, you know, into cities, um, you know, within our food bank program at times, but primarily... You know, it's rural farmers, rural communities. And so they need help from people that are living in, you know, in the cities. And so going out to the rural communities, going to the rural farmers market, driving, you know, 30 minutes uh, makes a difference. And it also makes a difference because a lot of the farmers don't really get, you know, a lot of visits. They don't get a lot of interaction. And they often, don't get a lot of black support. You know, 90% of my farmers' clients are white. They're not black. Right. And when they do try to sell to black people in from the city, they haggle. Well, why is it so much? You know, I can get it cheaper at Walmart. You know, you're not getting you're not getting produce from Walmart. You're getting it from the farm. Yeah. And, you know, you need to be considerate because when you are a true farmer. You have to look at the input costs. You have to look at the fuel and the labor and the tractor. Yeah. You have to look, you know, at the soil maintenance and um, the fertilizer and all of those things go into producing food. Yeah. And when you purchase from Walmart, you're purchasing, you know, GMO from, you know, South America, China. I mean, you don't know where it's coming from. Yeah. But when you purchase from a rural farm, you know, just in particular, a rural farm, um, you're purchasing it. You know where it's yeah. coming from and, and it's direct, you know, sales. There, there the are farmers, certain benefits so. that you have clarity in that may yes. cost a premium at times. But I, I love to think of it like this. We need to be intentional in how we support black, how we build our community better. And we need to be willing to be someone inconvenienced at times to do that, understanding the benefit all the way around. Yep. Yeah. Right. And also subscribe to, you know, their their CSA, their subscription subscription agreements. So like, you know, uh, they have monthly produce boxes that you can yeah. purchase from the farmers. So that's also something that you could do to really help the farmers. Yeah. Well, look, Jillian, we are coming to the end of our time. This has been an amazing conversation. I know I have learned a ton. The most important question that I want to ask you is this. You're the expert in this space, right? You work here day in, day out. You live, you breathe, you you cry behind what's happening here because you care. So what have we not asked today that you think people need to absolutely know about? I would would love for more of the children of the farmers to not sell the land Mm -hmm. when their parent passes away because it's... It's like an epidemic. Mm -hmm. And so I really want, again, the people that already own the land that are heirs to, you know, these farms, I really want them to reevaluate their perception of farmland ownership because often they consider it the closest thing next to slavery. But if it was the closest thing next to slavery, why would, you know, other people be stealing it? Yeah. You know, while we, you know, actively own it. And so I really 
want people to value land, don't sell the land. Also, protect the land for, you know, the next generation. But please don't, just don't sell it. And also, take care of your elders. Because organizations like farms, we are finding that a lot of um, the elder uh, children of these farmers are not, you know, they're not seeing about their um, parents and they're living from hand to mouth. Mm -hmm. And we ask them, well, where's your daughter? Where's your son? Oh, they're, you know, they're 30 minutes away. Oh, they're in Atlanta. They're in Jackson. You know, they're in Philadelphia. But you only come, you know, once or twice a year. And so it's just very important that you really um, plan, you know, you plan ahead and really take care of your elders because um, the way that we're seeing a lot of them living is, is you know, not in, in the best conditions, you know, when they're in their twilight years. Yeah, yeah. Hold on. Art, you got anything, brother? <laughs> I'm over here perplexed. I'm like, wow. I'm thinking collateral. I'm thinking about taxes. I'm thinking about Muskogee. I got land. It's so much. It's so much. But the but the message is so important. And it is. It is. Jillian, we and please pick pick up my book, A uh, Systematic Land Theft. Uh, you can purchase it at JillianHighshaw.com. You beat me to it. I was just going to ask you about that. Go ahead, hit him with him. Yeah, it's Systematic Land Theft. I've 14 years of research, uh, condensed into 200 and about 70, 80 pages. And um, it talks about the history of land theft. It gives you uh, various ways to protect your land. It has case studies and interviews with black farmers and everything. Also, don't bid the farm on Medicaid. It goes through, I think we're up to 21 states. And I go through each state and um, certain exemptions that you can um, use to protect your land and your home. Uh, and so, yeah, definitely check it out. I have more books that are will be coming out later in the year, um, but you can only buy it um, on my website at JillianHighshaw.com. You can buy the abbreviated book, uh, Draft of Systematic Land Theft, at currently five black bookstores, Malik Books in L.A., Harriet's Books in Philadelphia, Sankofa Books in D.C. across the street from Howard University, The Listening Tree in Atlanta, and The Doc Shop in Fort Worth, Texas. So thank you, mm. Black Bookstores, for your support of my work and the book. And thank you again um, to you both for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. And listen, listeners, you know in the episode notes will be all the ways to follow, to learn, to engage, and to support the work that Jillian's doing. So with that, Wild Black, peace. We out. Love you. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's.